Welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. In this teaching, Jetsama Akon Lamo not only explains the logic of the equality of all beings, but takes us through various ways we can experience our sameness. Compassion, or the bodhicitta, is not an emotion. It cannot be artificially stimulated. That is to say, uh, one cannot simply try to, uh, to feel compassion, to try to force oneself to feel compassion in the sense of priming the pump, you know, or creating some sort of artificial emotional structure. One cannot wait for compassion to arise. Uh, again, the, many mistake, the, the mistake that many students make when they come to me is they say, well, I really like the idea of a path that is really based on compassion. Yet, I'm not a compassionate person. I don't feel compassion. I'm not often concerned with the welfare of others. Mostly I think about myself. Embarrassingly, that's so. And in this path, uh, the feeling of compassion is not expected, you see. It's not a prerequisite for, for, for practicing the path. And the reason why is the feeling of, the, of compassion, the emotion of compassion, is simply that. It's only a feeling. It's only an emotion. It's an artificially contrived scenario that is actually uh, a contrivance made according to certain internal and external stimuli. But like other emotions, it's fleeting comes and goes. Everybody during the course of their life has felt compassion at some point. Isn't that true? I mean, if you see a dying animal or someone that's helpless or a picture of someone that's hungry, and compassion will hit different people differently. Uh, Some people respond to physical uh, suffering that other people have, and they really feel deeply about that. But then other people don't respond to that that much. They, They sort of respond more to mental suffering that other people have. But we all have felt compassion at some point. Well, where is that compassion now? Where is that compassion when we are required to practice compassion in some way? That compassion that is stimulated emotionally is a very fleeting thing. It's a puffball. It's a puffball. Not to be relied on. Not to be considered the foundation of the path. On this path, we understand that the awakening of the bodhicitta, the, the arising of compassion, is actually considered much differently. When it is truly found, when it is truly awakened, we actually find that the bodhicitta is more a habitual tendency. If you are not the kind of person that is very effusively, emotionally compassionate, Compassionate. If you're not the kind of person that walks around feeling warm fuzzies about everyone else, if you're not the kind of person that just puts your hand to your heart every time the word poverty you know, is mentioned, if you're not that kind of effusive, sweet, eyes cast ever heavenward kind of person, it means nothing. It does not mean that you are not compassionate. It simply means that it is not your habit to act or feel that way. 
On the other hand, if you are the kind of person that is very effusive, uh, that is very, very, thinks everything that has to do with the suffering of mankind, of humankind, is very meaningful, uh, the kind of person who takes it to heart whenever they see anything, the kind of person that must give to the Salvation Army, the kind of person that cannot see one of those Save the Children posters without berating themselves and wishing that they could feed all children, that may not mean that you have truly awakened the bodhicitta. It may only mean that you have the habit of feeling a certain way, that you have the habit of being expressive in a certain way. In, according to the Buddhist teaching, the awakening of the bodhicitta, like anything else, like any other quality that we express, is actually a habitual, an habitual, habitual tendency. It is a tendency that we develop through many, many episodes of using and reusing certain kinds of behavior. In order to awaken the habit of compassion within our mind streams, to have it be so much a part of it that is naturally, spontaneously expressed in a way that is useful, and let me stop and explain that for a moment, it is not especially useful to hold your hand to your heart and make a big deal about the sufferings of the world. It is, however, especially useful to feel the sufferings of the world to the degree that you dedicate your life to alleviating suffering. There's a difference, you see. Holding your hand to your heart and making a big deal, making a big scene, doesn't help anyone, and it's mostly about you, trying to convince you that you are a really cool person. Whereas, really making your life a meaningful expression or vehicle by which you can actually practice compassion and actually be of benefit to sentient beings in a way that is actually helpful, that is true compassion. And even within that, the Buddha teaches us that there are two kinds of compassion. There is ordinary compassion, that is to say, the kind of compassionate activity that will alleviate the suffering that we feel from now until the time of our, of our death. That is to say, if you feed someone, even if you fed all of India, let's say, and you fed them from now, all of the people alive in India now, from now until the time of their death, wouldn't that seem like extraordinary compassion? Wouldn't that seem amazing? Wouldn't that seem like you just spent every cent you had and more? Uh, wouldn't that seem like an amazing effort? Of course, it would seem amazing, but according to the Buddha, that's actually ordinary compassion. It's doable, believe it or not. If someone had enough money and could organize things well enough, it's doable. And it can be done in an ordinary way, using ordinary means, during the course of one lifetime. But what makes it really ordinary is that it will only alleviate suffering from the time of the birth of that person, to the time of the death of that person. You cannot follow any of those people in India into the bardo, into the intermediate experience. You cannot follow them into their next rebirth. You cannot permanently alleviate the causes of their suffering when the causes of their suffering are not actually hunger. The causes of their suffering actually are the karma of their own mind stream. The Buddha teaches us that we should engage in ordinary compassion because one must relieve the suffering temporarily in order to get at 
the deeper suffering. But still, ultimate bodhicitta or ultimate compassion comes about when we can really permanently solve the problems of cyclic existence. And the only real solving of the problem of cyclic existence is enlightenment. So let's say that we can really engage in this outrageous uh, kind of activity that helps sentient beings in an ordinary way. Still, we have a lot to do. We must still learn somehow to practice the miraculous, enlightened capacity of being able to benefit sentient beings in a permanent way to solve the problems of cyclic existence. Because no matter what we experience in cyclic existence, we will die and we will achieve rebirth, either in a lower rebirth or an intermediate rebirth, and perhaps even occasionally a higher rebirth. But always that rebirth changes. Nothing is permanent. Even higher rebirths can fall if all of the merit is used in a higher rebirth. Cyclic existence is circular, and to solve the problems of cyclic existence, there is only one solution, and that is to alleviate, to pacify the three root poisons that cause the constant revolving in cyclic existence, to pacify hatred, greed, and ignorance, to eliminate desire, and therefore to achieve enlightenment. This is the way to solve cyclic existence, to alleviate the suffering of another, is for ourselves to achieve sufficient realization as to be able to offer such a path, such a way, such a method to other sentient beings so that they can alleviate their own suffering, relieve their own suffering. So this is the true meaning of compassion. But in our lack of understanding, we think of ourselves as being unkind or not compassionate beings because we have certain kinds of personalities. Perhaps we're a little stiff. Perhaps we're a little reclusive. Perhaps we're a little quiet. You know, perhaps we uh, just don't make a big deal about making a show of our feelings. We think that we're not compassionate. And other people are duped by their own emotional display, thinking that because they're noisy about it, that they're truly compassionate. According to the Buddhist teachings, none of that stuff means anything. Compassion must be developed like a habit. And sometimes when you begin to practice compassion by praying for other sentient beings, sometimes you do it like, okay, I'd like to be a compassionate person. Well, actually, what I'd like to do is I'd like to see suffering end. So even though it's not my nature, even though I really don't like to do this, even though I don't feel like this is really me, I'm going to say one mala of Omani Padme Hung's for the sake of sentient beings. <laughs> I feel silly doing this. This isn't me. Omani Padme Hung, Omani Padme Hung. Is anybody looking? Pretty soon, after doing that every day for a little while, begins to feel more natural. That's the first sign that you're creating, that you are allowing the bodhicitta that is your true nature to actually awaken. Begins to feel more natural. You don't feel like such a dope. 
And before you know it, pretty soon you're doing it on public places like a bus. It's kind of like... Have you noticed that starting to happen? And pretty soon you're watching TV and you're going, oh my, baby, oh my, oh my, oh my. And pretty soon you're developing this habit. You ask yourself, why are you doing this? Well, because, you know, I'd really like to see suffering end. I'd like to accumulate many of these and dedicate the virtue to the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings. But I'm still stiff as a ramrod. And I still don't make a big deal. And I'm still not very showy about my feelings. Although my, my wife is, or my husband is, but I'm not. I'm just doing this. So what's actually happening to you is you are awakening the bodhicitta, little by little, piece by piece. And then pretty soon you'll find yourself thinking thoughts that you never thought before, like, look at that suffering. Oh, I'd give anything to see that kind of thing end. Or you read the paper, the thing in the paper that I saw the other day, you read something about they think they found the cure for cystic fibrosis. And you find yourself jumping up and down! Yay! What? What's happening to me? Pretty soon you're developing the habit, the real habit, for compassion. And you find that you're thinking of your own suffering just a little bit less because you're remembering all these other beings that are suffering. Little by little, this subtle change begins to happen. It's a real mind blower. And that actually is the technology that is suggested, that is taught by the Buddha. The slow and steady creating of the habitual tendency of loving kindness in order to antidote the poison of self-absorption, of hatred, of greed, of ignorance, and as well in order to awaken the bodhicitta, which is our true, which is the display, actually, of our true primordial wisdom nature. That is the habit that is actually suggested, the, the practice that is actually suggested. It is utterly meaningless what your personality type is like. Sure, we hope eventually you'll get to the point where you could smile once in a while. We hope that'll happen. But even if it doesn't happen, if you're still practicing to benefit sentient beings, it's okay. I actually have met some lamas. In fact, I don't know if you know stories about my guru, Pan Arimpache. He only smiles when company comes. You know, when he meets new students, he's like, Mr. Smiley. But when you really get to be a close student of his, he is really wrathful. But truly, his wrath is the most compassionate wrathfulness that there is. Everything that he does, all of the wrathful practice that he generates, all of the activities he does that pull you up short and make you, you know, put a choke collar on and make you dance the right dance and sing the right tune. All of the activity that he does to really put you in line is only done for your benefit. He is extremely compassionate. I know that all of the activity that I have seen him engage in and, engage in, and particularly all of the uh, wrathful display that he has personally engaged in with me has been to my benefit and has always always resulted in purification, in great and, and remarkable, uh, unbelievable, in fact, benefit. But those that, that are his close students would not exactly call him jolly old Saint Nick, if you know what I mean. When you know that he's coming, you sort of really look forward to it because you know your life is about to change and it's going to be fantastic.
and you really don't look forward to it because you're not, you know your life is about to change and it's going to be miserable. <laughs> Actually, I've been told that that's true about me, too. <laughs> oh, no, here she comes. So compassion may take many different forms and it's hard for us to tell exactly uh, what it should look like. All we know, all we can know to do is to create the habitual tendency. Now this is for the benefit of pulling in those of you that simply come on Sundays. Now I would like to continue uh, for those who are uh, practicing in this retreat in such a way as to make another step forward uh, in our preparation for compassion. Now as you know, yesterday we spent the day uh, trying to uh, look at the suffering of sentient beings and, and that is actually the main theme of the first day of the retreat on compassion but for this retreat that main theme has been modified to make it extremely personal yesterday we spent the day understanding our own suffering understanding its subtleties its gross appearance its obvious appearance uh, how it has come about how it intertwines, how we continue to create it. We've spent a great long time doing that yesterday, and hopefully we continued into the night creating a deeper awareness of that kind of thing, of that particular subject. In the last retreat that we had on Bodhicitta, the next main topic that was actually discussed was the equality of all that lives. This is a traditional Buddhist teaching. Uh, the equality is based on a certain factor. It isn't just a broad sweep of statement that says, hey, I'm a nice guy, I'm going to say that everybody's equal. It isn't some grandiose statement like that. You know, Again, it is not an emotional display. It isn't you being a nice guy saying everybody's equal. You know, uh, Women, men, blacks, whites, uh, uh, animals, people, yes, I believe in them all, I love them all, I'm a nice person. That's not what it is. The Buddha actually bases the teaching on equality on a certain premise, a certain philosophy. And it is actually a meat and bones uh, mainstream philosophy of Buddhist uh, uh, religion, of Buddhist thinking. And that is that within each and every sentient being that lives, a sentient being means sensing being, any being that has consciousness enough to have any sensory phenomena going on at all, even if it's extremely rudimentary, like a one-celled one -celled, uh, amoeba or something. An amoeba uh, has enough sensory input to be able to move away from something and to move towards something. Isn't that right? So anything that has some, I mean, I'm not, a, tell me if I'm wrong. Any of you here are super scientists. As I understand it, the Buddha did not even mention plants as being uh, as, um, uh, sentient beings. However, uh, tests have actually been done in which they, they seem to feel that plants have the ability to sense. Uh, they have certain rhythms that can be measured, and those rhythms go dead when a uh, fire is near them or when they smell smoke. Did you know that? And they, they actually respond to certain kinds of music. They will die when they, when they hear hard rock and roll which I can understand. <laughs> there are certain kinds of rock and roll. I like classic rock and roll. I don't know how they do with classic rock and roll. But some of this new stuff, 
And I think I'd probably die too. But they actually like classical music. They like classical music a lot. And they actually flourish around classical music. So plants seem to actually be sentient beings too, although the Buddha didn't mention them. There are many sentient beings. We are taught that all sentient beings are actually equal. They're actually equal. How are they equal? Even though sentient beings seem to be very different, there seems to be quite a difference between a cockroach and a human being, don't you think? Otherwise, it would be just as acceptable to step on a human being, wouldn't it? We would think there's quite a difference between a mosquito and a human being, wouldn't you think so? Otherwise, somebody might be walking around going to us. But according to the Buddha's teaching, all sentient beings are equal. They are all perfectly equal in that each one has within them the innate Buddha seed, the potential for being Buddha. Equally, in every sentient being from the cockroach to the amoeba to the mosquito to the caterpillar to the butterfly to the human being to the elephant to the hungry ghost to the hell realm being to the god beings, all of them have within them the innate Buddha nature that is spontaneously complete. That means to say that you can't make that Buddha nature any better. It's already kind of built. You know what I'm saying? You can't make it bigger or better. You can't build it. It's not going to improve with age. It doesn't evolve. No such thing. This is Buddhist philosophy that there's no evolution of that nature. It doesn't get bigger. Nothing like that. If we had pure view, we would look at the mosquito and we would see the Buddha. We would see the Buddha. We would know that even that mosquito that we're about to squish because it's sucking our blood, even that mosquito has karmic connection with sentient beings that someday it will be able to bring liberation to. And yet we're about to swat the stew out of it. All sentient beings are innately equal. That in their nature they weigh exactly the same. Think about that. Isn't that a mind-boggling idea? Think, how does it happen then that we walk outside in the summertime and we cannot help but trod on uncountable sentient beings, single-celled things and ants and bugs and stuff like that? By the way, that should give us some idea of one of the faults of cyclic existence. Do you know in cyclic existence you cannot help but accumulate negative karma? Even if you breathe, in your teeth, when you brush your teeth, there are single-celled bacteria that are sentient beings. To brush your teeth, you have to kill sentient beings. Please don't stop brushing your teeth. (laughs) Because I have to have consultations with you people. And I would not like it if you had to sit way over there. (laughs) And another thing is that when you wash under your arms, it's the same thing. Bacteria are are sentient beings. Please don't stop that either. (laughs) You'd have to be in the next room. We do this by microphone. So... uh, it is not possible to keep from, from killing sentient beings, yet they are all absolutely equal. The equality of all that lives. Now we have to take that down to ourselves. 
Well, that's an interesting phenomenon when we think of cockroaches being the same as mosquitoes, as being the same as human beings. But let's talk about you, shall we? It's always your favorite subject anyway. So let's talk about you. How is it that you have become the human being that is practicing Dharma, that you have become? And there are some that you cannot help but harm, who are mosquitoes or cockroaches or little creatures in the earth. There are some that are invisible to you, that you cannot help but harm. How is it that you have become what you are, and they have become what they are? Can anyone tell me? How is it? How has that happened? Anyone? It's okay. Karma. That's true. Karma. Now, in Buddhism, we actually believe in transmigration. That means that uh, according to one's karma, one can take on the display of any life form, so long as that life form mirrors one's karma. Literally, one can look into the mirror and have an idea as to what their karma is about. You know, uh, Buddha, one, a common Buddhist saying that is said again and again by many teachers, why would you pay money to go to a clairvoyant to get a reading about your past lives? All you have to do is look in the mirror. You can see a lot about yourself right there. Look at the way you look physically. You can tell how purely you have kept commitments and vows on a physical level before. If you are beautiful, then you have kept them purely. Look at uh, your emotional nature. If you have the habit of compassion, of being kind, like that, then you have practiced compassion in the past. That's the only way it comes about. It doesn't come about because you just lucked out. If you have, or are through the natural passage of time, naturally passing time does not create karma, does not create compassion in the same way uh, banana seeds do not create apple trees. The practice of compassion creates compassion, period. That's it. Likewise, if your, uh, your life force is strong and your health is pretty good, it is probably the case that you have uh, supported the well-being of others in the past, that you have been kind to others in a way as to support their lives. If you are fairly wealthy or if wealth comes easily to you or at least if you do not suffer from poverty and it seems as though what you need to do is, is easily accomplished and that you can always draw the resources you can think then that in the past you have been generous to others. Now, interestingly, there are little glitches in this that you have to look at as well, and that is that some people are extremely rich, but they're very, very poor. They have no idea how rich they are, and they do not live like rich people or enjoy themselves like rich people. They live in a very dark and poverty-stricken way. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? They don't have the capacity to really experience opulence and affluence. Yet they have lots of money, so the money's kind of like a bad joke. It's a mixed karma. It really indicates that in the past they have not been generous, but have engaged in some kind of activity that brings about the appearance of money, but not really wealth. See what I'm saying? And there are some people who are extremely beautiful, but that beauty to them has become a poison because they've used that beauty very badly. They've used it to get, to manipulate others, to take care of them, or to, to um, uh, perhaps they've used the money to, uh, there, are, there are prostitutes who use the money to get others to support them.
you see, I use the a beauty to get others to support them. And then there are people who use their beauty to, to uh, make others fall in love with them while they themselves do not feel great love for others. You see what I'm saying? Yes? They, or they use the beauty to, as an excuse not to practice. You know, they think, well, I'm so beautiful, I'm having such a good time. Why should I practice? I'm very happy being beautiful. Very, very hard to be beautiful. I mean, to be, be to be to practice if you're too busy being beautiful. So the beauty for them becomes a great curse. And so then that beauty may not be because they have kept vows purely in the past, but it may be a mixed karma in that they have this physical characteristic, but that ultimately it is a great deficit for them, causes them suffering. See what I'm saying? So it depends. You have to really look at things really deeply, but you can learn about yourself by looking in the mirror. As for the equality that you may have with others, you, like every other sentient being, are experiencing the rebirth that you are experiencing because of the display of the content of your mind stream as it is now. But make no mistake, it is not a cut-and-dry, clean, always certain, linear progression. The, um, according to the Buddha's teaching, there is no predicting, unless one is supremely realized, how karma will actually ripen. Karma ripens in many strange and convoluted ways, and how the karma of the mind stream actually ripens is unpredictable. It's kind of like you know, that Las Vegas slot, uh, machine, you know, where you pull the thing and three cherries comes up, or maybe two lemons and a cherry, or what's it called? A slot, slot machine. machine. Slot machine. I thought it might be that. A slot machine. And uh, it really, the karma ripening depends on a slot machine. It depends on many circumstances. How your previous death was. What are the catalysts that you have met with that will ripen these buried seeds of karma within your mind stream, because the mind stream is almost like a seed pod, if you will. I like to use the demonstration of uh, thinking of a time and space grid that you are at right now. And let's say this is the space that you are in and this is the time, the, the, the linear time that you are born in. Sort of behind that time, hidden within the fabric of your mind stream, or mind stream are karmic seeds, potentials that are as yet unripened. And they have to do with deeds and thoughts and energies that you yourself have created for aeons and aeons of cyclic existence since time out of mind, inconceivable time that you have been revolving in cyclic existence. These seeds are unripened. They are as yet unborn. When time and space happens, and this is kind of the point of power where you actually are, you will meet with almost like um, in the space surrounding you, it will seem as though you meet with certain catalysts. Now, you know this to be true. You know that in certain environments, you seem to display certain characteristics, while in other environments, you display other characteristics. Isn't that true? Haven't you noticed that within relationships? Some relationships bring out the worst in you, that you turn into Mr. or Ms. Hyde under certain conditions. I have a friend who swears that he turns to Mr. Hyde on the telephone, and I agree with him. And uh, the, the, uh, uh, maybe the parents that you've had in this lifetime. Um, 
will cause you to bring out certain qualities within yourself. But with any relationship, you might, it might bring out your worst qualities, and then you might be with, a, with another friend or in another deep relationship, and it brings out the very best in you. And of course, within that, there are many degrees of mixed phenomena arising. But the catalyst will tend to draw forth, it will have a drawing effect. It will draw forth like scenarios within your karmic capacity. You see what I'm saying? These unborn seeds will be drawn forth when they meet with a catalyst that is like them. So that a very negative relationship, that is to say a relationship that is based on negative karma that you would have with a certain person and with a certain person who has a lot of negative karma will tend to bring forth the negative ripenings within you. Understandable, isn't it? And as well, uh, a very positive relationship based on positive karma with a person with a lot of positive karma ripening will tend to bring forth the positive karma within you. So it's unpredictable. It depends on what catalysts you meet with. It depends on many different factors. And one seed bringing, coming forth and ripening can be like this. It can link another seed and cause another catalyst, another ripening to come forth. It's like a pot of stew boiling. You never know what's going to come to the surface. There are many ingredients in that stew. Literally, all sentient beings have the karma for being reborn in the God realm. Oh, yes, aren't you wonderful? You have the karma for being beautiful. All of you do. You have the karma for being rich. All of you do. You have the karma for being ugly. All of you do. You have the karma for being human. All of you do. You have the karma for being a cockroach. All of you do. You have the karma for being poor. All of you do. Like that. There is enough time that has passed in aeons and aeons of cyclic existence that all capacities are within you. And what you see now is merely what is ripening in the vast sea of your own mind stream. That's why the technology that is presented on this path actually works. You have the potential. You have excellent karma that you can ripen, that you can make choices about and ripen. The more you practice, the more compassion you practice, the more actually comes forth and ripens the more merit that will come forth. The more merit you create, the more that will ripen. Like draws like. As you create stronger spiritual capacity on this path, you actually ripen stronger spiritual capacity. It comes forth. Whereas you may have engaged in spiritual activity in the past, if you don't catalyze that ripening now, it is likely that it remains extremely dormant until some unforeseeable very far in the future time. Too deep in the back to get forward. Too tightly immature to ripen this wonderful seed that you need. But as you practice, you actually draw it forward and ripen it. And the, the uh, expression that is used, in, used is actually ripening the mind stream. Ripening the mind stream. But the capacity for Buddhahood does not change. You do not become more a Buddha nature. You do not become more primordial wisdom nature. That's already spontaneously accomplished and instantly completed. That's already so. 
What is different is the ripening of the karma within our mind stream. This is the Buddhist philosophy, and this is how it is that we are exactly equal with all sentient beings. To borrow a phrase from another religion, please forgive me, there but for the grace of God go I. In this case, it would be there but for the grace of Buddha go I. And the philosophy that we actually adapt is that we look at all sentient beings as the same as us, the same as us, literally weighing the same. And so we think, well, okay, I'm important. Sure, I can see that I'm important. I mean, I know that I'm important. I think about myself all the time. But look at all these sentient beings. How many sentient beings? How many animals? How many insects? How many one-celled animals? How many beings in lower realms? All suffering, although they are the same as me. Suffering because they cannot ripen the good fortune, the merit to be in the position that I am in so that they can practice, so that they can achieve realization. They can't. I mean, it's true that I'm the same as a cockroach, but a cockroach can't achieve enlightenment now. So I say, Omani Padme Hum for the cockroach. Try not to step on it. When we look at that in a very personal and direct way, here is how we should practice. And this is specifically for those of us on retreat, but those of you who are not on retreat, you can still engage in this practice. This is good for you. This is something that would be helpful to you. Study for yourself other sentient beings, from the simplest to the most complicated that you can think of. I find it useful to... Well, let's see, recently I went to the um, Baltimore, is it called Sequarium or Aquarium? Aquarium? Uh, the Baltimore Aquarium, and I remember uh, seeing the big sharks. You know, they have a big tank with big sharks in them, and, um, and uh, dolphins and uh, uh, whales. They have whales as well. Dolphins and whales being mammals, just like me, and sharks being uh, creatures that are, you know, predators, awful to look at. I mean, magnificent in one way, but awful to look at. At least you don't want to find them in your bathtub, that's for sure. <laughs> you don't want to be swimming with these guys. They look ferocious. They'd like to have you for lunch. And uh, watching them and thinking, that, that is the same as me. I mean, that brings it down to hard, cold reality. You know, you look at a shark, ah, <laughs> that is the same as me. Same. Weighs the same. Well, maybe not. He's about 350. You know, I'm not exactly 350. So I have to think of this in a more profound way. In terms of the Buddha nature, in terms of anything that is, a, is real, this creature is the same as me. Undeniably has the same weight, has the same value as me. Look at that thing. Someday, that being that has karmic connections with creatures that, has, that have eaten it in the past, that it has eaten, strange convoluted karmic connections that we can't even imagine. Someday that thing will become a Buddha. And those will awaken to its nature, will awaken the bodhicitta while it's eating things now. It will awaken to the 
Buddha nature. It will awaken to the uh, bodhicitta. And, and just think about it. All of the beings with whom it has these offbeat connections, including the bacteria that are growing on its body, it will be the cause of liberation for these future beings. This is the, according to the Buddhist teaching, this is how it is. A magnificent teaching, yet in the same way, a really horribly sad teaching because our understanding of the nature is so limited that we so deeply identify with our supremacy as human beings. And due to that, we have no real compassion. Think about the little one-celled things that we're killing when we brush our teeth. If we can find pictures of them, we can look at a film of an, of a, of an amoeba under a microscope, or, we, or actually see something like that under a microscope. How amazing that this thing is in its nature, the very Lord, the very Buddha nature, same as me. Its nature is still the vast expanse of primordial view. That uncontrived luminosity, that pure primordial nature, that is its nature. At this aquarium, I can only hope that in some small way, perhaps I was a catalyst for the ripening of future benefit in this shark by saying prayers for it. I can only hope that. What was that shark to me in the past? When did it last see me? When I was a shark? How amazing. We hear stories about Lord Buddha himself, his stories about his past lives, when he was fish, when he was animal, when he was a, an awakening bodhisattva, giving his life or using his life as a vehicle to end the suffering of other sentient beings again and again and again. And now he is the Buddha. It is from him that all benefit in this aeon actually comes. How unpredictable is samsara. Now here's our practice. We have to look at all sentient beings from the very simplest to the most complicated and think, I could have been that. Me. Don't make it theoretical like sometimes sharks are born as humans or could be a human was once a shark. Not like that. I could have been that. Try to go into a state of relaxation, a state of meditation in which one can actually sense the vast expanse of one's nature. Of course, not being realized, we cannot truly taste that nature. Yet we can relax the mind perhaps in order to feel some spaciousness and can relax into the stability of the vast expanse of that pure luminosity that is that nature. And think that from the view of that vast expanse, here is the display that is shark. Here is the display that is cockroach. Here is the display that is human. Here is the display that is bird. Here is the display that is amoeba. Here is the display perhaps that is plant. 
Here is the display that is bacteria on a, a moat of dust floating through the air. Here is this display. What is it that keeps me feeling I am not that? I could have been that. In my nature, I am that. We can think like that. We can practice like that. I could have been that. And in that way, study the equality of all that lives. Pacify the prejudice. Pacify the arrogance. Pacify the competitiveness. Pacify the ego pride, the ego clinging. Now let's make it a little bit more difficult. Sometimes it's a little bit more grand and wonderful to think that perhaps you might have been a cockroach. You see? You can think like, oh yes, it's very big of me. I'm thinking I might have been a cockroach. If you practice the way I've just indicated you should practice, I don't think you'll do that, but that's a trap that we can fall into. Let's try something a little bit harder. Can you think of someone that you think is just awful? You don't like the way they dress. Their personality is just appalling to you. You can't stand their sense of personal ethics. They smell bad to you. You just think they're awful people. They act in ways that you just can't stand. You cannot tolerate, you cannot abide them. Do you know anybody like that? That just, in your heart of hearts, you just go, ew. You cringe when they come around. You cringe. You just, just, mm. Do you know anybody like that? Their neuroses is such that it just makes your skin crawl. Do you know anybody like that? Of course you do. Everybody's got somebody that makes their skin crawl. Now you have to think, guess what? I am the same as them. Not only in my nature, but each and every habitual tendency and karmic cause and effect that has ripened in them to produce this awful personality that they have and awful disgusting appearance that they might have. Whatever it is, I have that within myself as well. It just hasn't come together in the same way. I didn't pull the cranker and get three lemons. They did. I, of course, got the cherries. <laughs> but they pulled three lemons or three alligators or something three horrible. We don't know what. But you have to think that all you have to do is pull it one more time and you may end up with the same configuration. And you will pull it one more time. And you must examine yourself and think the very opinion of them as being that way. Don't you think it's ripening that karma in you? Don't you think it's pulling those horrendous little seeds forward in their nasty little horribleness? Don't you think that that could be happening? Absolutely. So it's worse than there for the, for the grace of Buddha, but for the grace of Buddha go I. It's more like, probably soon, if I don't watch it. It's more like that. And so from a practical and logical point of view, it makes sense to practice on the equality and equanimity of all that lives, to see that all natures are equal, that all nature is equal.
to understand what cause and effect, what actually brings about the circumstance that we see now, that we put so much stock on. I hear from students that they have different kinds of inability to experience compassion. They have a hard time, for instance, praying for um, certain kinds of people. Everybody uh, has a particular issue. Maybe some people don't like, just for some reason they can't feel sorry for street people. They think they ought to go out and get a job, something like that. Or perhaps they have a hard time praying for, I don't know, old people. They just don't like to think about old people. Or perhaps they have a hard time praying for, um, I don't know, underprivileged people. Maybe they have a hard time with that. Or perhaps some people have a hard time feeling compassion for animals. Or perhaps some people have a hard time feeling compassion for humans. They only like to feel compassion for animals. Uh, or perhaps some people have a hard time feeling compassion for the unseen ones, the ones that are in non-physical realms, because they can't relate to it. So whatever is the difficulty that you feel, you should especially spend some energy on that. You should think of uh, the, the teaching of the Buddha of these different kinds of life forms and how they have come about, how they are all equal, and think that you have the same karma within your mind stream, but it is simply not ripened in that way at that time. And you should meditate really strongly on the equality of all that lives by saying, I can be that. I am the same as that. I could be that. Now, I'm using as the format for, format for our meditation during this retreat a practice that I developed and personally did when I was 19, 20, 21, all the way into my mid-twenties and beyond, actually. And it's, uh, it's the preliminary practice for a certain kind of chud or offering that one makes. And tomorrow is actually the offering portion of the retreat. Um, that is the, the part where it all comes together and the, it's, it's, it's uh, the, 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 the meaningfulness of it will, will come to you. Yesterday and today are more like the preliminary and preparation practice for that kind of thing. The way that I practiced at the, in this aspect, after having determined uh, the faults of cyclic existence and particularly the fault of the scenarios and, and limitations of the, of, of the life that I found myself in at the time, which we were instructed to do yesterday, I went into the next phase, and that was meditating on the equality of all that lives, but I did it in a very particular and personal way by really uh, bringing it down to me. Not letting, I, did, I was brutal with myself, you see? I didn't let myself get away with anything. Again, using the phrase, take no prisoners. I was ruthless. I looked at everyone that I didn't like, everyone who I didn't like the way they looked, everyone that I had no patience for, and I said, I'm the same. Hmm. And I really meditated on that until I could see it, not until I just meditated on it, but until I could really see it, until I could find the same qualities within myself. If you look deeply enough, you will find the same qualities in yourself even to the degree that you look at the shark and you see the predator. You see the killer. You see the killer in yourself. 
So I did that with all life forms. And I even, I didn't know whether molecules could be considered sentient beings. So I tried to do it that way too. I thought of myself as perhaps I could have been molecules of water. I could have been a stream. I could have been wind. I could have been anything. I have to see the equality of all that lives. I have to view with equanimity. Stabilize the mind by viewing with equanimity. And I looked at everything that I could find and saw it was the same as me. Until it became only reasonable and only logical to offer my life for the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings because I am equal to them and there is only one of me and so much display of that nature in the form of other sentient beings. So many more of them than there are of you. Their weight is heavier. So today I would like you to practice in that way. Use the movies that we have. Use the books that we have. Use your meditation time to examine the equality of all that lives, but particularly examine your sameness with all that lives. Again, take no prisoners. Be absolutely ruthless. See that all qualities that are displayed as any sentient being exist within the, con within the fabric of your mind stream. Allow yourself to see that while all sentient beings are the same in their nature, they are also the same in the many kinds of different habitual tendencies that they display. It's just the formula that has come together differently. And no one can predict how karma ripens. Please think about the unborn karmic seeds within your own mind stream. View them truthfully and honestly and truly. And in this way, you will be prepared to take the next step. So the next teaching that I will have with the retreat group will be at approximately 4.30. You have quite a bit of time in order to do this. Now again, this is, you must understand that when I did this, I did, uh, you know, the first, uh, the, what we did yesterday, I took about eight months to accomplish. And what we did today, I took quite a bit longer than that. So to, to think that you finished it in one day, no. You should not think that. Today, you will be developing the skill. You'll be getting a feel for it but it will be a, a task that you should keep up for yourself. What you did yesterday, you should keep on doing. What you will do today, you should keep on doing. And it is a skill that you will take home and utilize in order to actually awaken the bodhicitta within your mind stream. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payol Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.